What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. Hey, what's up, everybody? We're back. We're back. Back in the building, back in the house. Okay, okay. You know, I'm very excited about tonight. Um, Devin, I think this is going to be a good, good show that we have because I have a real good friend that's joining us, Bintu Musa Harry. And I mean, our paths crossed in Panama years ago. I don't even know how many years ago at this point, but I remember this woman. And I mean, the crazy thing is she probably had the same lipstick color that she had on right now. And I remember how bodacious this woman was when she walked into this apartment with her cousin, having drove to San Blas in a rental car that you need a four by four and they didn't have this car. And like these two women came in talking, they did this and they had bought lobsters and all these things in this community. And I was just so scared to leave my uncle's house and come to Panama. I was like, man, this ain't gonna, this ain't gonna be like this anymore after I met this woman right here. So before I go further, and I'm gonna come back to that because that was a pivotal point for me in my life that night on Via Argentina in La Ciudad de Panama in whatever year that was, 2000. But Bintu Musahari, Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State. She holds a BA in Political Science and International Studies from Townsend University and a Master's Degree in International Development from American University, where she focused her research on democracy development and post-conflict societies. Bintu is a proud recipient of the Thomas R. Pickering Fellowship. Through this fellowship, she worked in the Bureau of African Affairs Office for Central Africa and the International Narcotic and Law Enforcement Section of the U.S. Embassy in Lima, Peru. Most recently, she served as a counselor office at the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Prior to joining the Foreign Service, she designed programs for adult education, youth development, and girls' empowerment initiatives. She also served as a Fulbright Scholar in Rwanda, where she taught English at Rwanda Tourism University College. Her other overseas experiences include living in Guyana and Panama, shout out. But in her spare time, this is my favorite part of the bio, she enjoys tropical vacations, African literature, reggae concerts. Shout out Sisla, because that was a day. She speaks Sierra, Sierra Leone and Creole, Haitian Creole, Spanish, and French. She is currently learning Vietnamese in preparation for her next assignment as a public diplomacy officer at the U.S. Consulate in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Que so What's up, Bintu Musa Harry? How are you doing this evening? Que so I mean, sometimes when I run into Panamanians, I try to say that, but then I'm like, no, you need to just chill. Hi, Devin. Hi, Javi. And that's the that's the bio right there. I need to give you one of those. The way it's the way he wrote it's the way he read it. It's the way he read it. This I was even excited to listen to. I'm like, yeah, and I did that too. So is that is that me? (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's you. Don't play. You sent this to me. 
You sent this to me. I didn't add anything on this, except I did add one thing, the queso pa. The queso pa. I need to have Javi read that every time I'm about to do anything like this. That was awesome. I'm really happy to be here, guys. Thank you for inviting me. I'm always happy to talk about, um, you know, different experiences, traveling, any of the countries that I've been in, short-term, long-term, navigating international careers, whatever it is. You guys know about that. So I'm just excited to be here, and I'm going to let you guys pose questions. I'll try my best to answer them. And then, of course, I'm here on my own accord. So nothing I say today are the views of the U.S. Department of State. They are solely my views. I'm only expressing my opinion and my experiences. So let's try to just keep the line there so people know I'm not speaking officially. No, I know we're going there. We, we know what's up here today. And I, I'm going to be like half a bit selfish at the beginning All of right. this whole thing because, you know, I'm, I'm part Panamanian and we, we met in Panama. I know your life doesn't begin in Panama, but it like, <laughs> we're, we're good. Well, there it is. So I want to see like, because when I met you, I didn't know you were, you were West African or West African descent. Like, I just like, this girl is so Northeast because I'm from Texas. Her accent, like, I guess she was so Merlin. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I was like, who is this girl from the Northeast in here bodaciously doing what it is that she's doing? So I want to jump it off and ask you kind of like, who maybe was been to when, when our past met in Panama? And like, how did you get there? Why did you come? Yeah. And like, what, what happened after? Like, and then how do we, you don't got to go into how do we get here? Because we're yeah. going to talk about that. But, like, what was up in Panama? Why were we there? Because I yeah, was you were there. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. The way you say cross paths is very important. I think it's, it's key, right? That's, we, we did cross paths. Uh, we met in 2012. So, in actually, on August 3rd, 2012, I moved to Panama. I remember the date because I had been, like, struggling through um, working at this nonprofit organization in D.C. I'm from Maryland, from the DMV, born and raised. And I remember, like, loving the work that I was doing at this place, but, like, having a really hard time with, like, workplace bullying and some of the, the type of people that I was working with. So there was an older Black woman um, that told me, she said, you know, Bintu, it seems like you have a lot that you want to do and a lot that you can do, and they're not seeing your talents here. So by this time next year, what do you want to be doing? And so she, I was like, what do you mean? And so she, she told me, think about what would be amazing for you to be doing by this time next year, what would be acceptable for you to be doing by this time next year, what would be subpar? So I said, amazing would be working internationally or working full-time at a job here in the U.S. that allows me 40% travel. Acceptable would be being in the same exact position that I am today, and um, today as in back then in 2012, and then Subpar so would be just not doing anything, like not being able to like do any of these things. So I quit the job, I think in about April. I signed up for a teaching English as a foreign language certification, which I did online. I had no money, but I, I like used whatever little savings I had to pay for the class. And then I got the certificate. And I remember like feeling so revitalized by being able to go. It was like 50 hours online, 50 hours in class on the weekends. And so I was just so excited about that. And then once I finished with the course, or as I was nearing the, the completion of the course, it started to become a reality. Like, okay, where can I go and teach? Because I always knew that I wanted to teach abroad. I thought it would be like an adventure. I knew it was a way to get me overseas, but it's something that I always knew I wanted to do. So I started researching. Costa Rica was like very popular. They were accepting a lot of English teachers. Asia, of course, was a thing. But somehow I like started researching Panama. And I knew, I learned that they were like, there was a need for English language teachers there and they were actually paying more than Costa Rica and that the market hadn't been oversaturated yet. 
So I just like focused all my energy on like landing a job in Panama. I made like an application packet, submitted my resume, cover letters, um, recommendation letters, my certificate, and I was like ready to go. But everybody that would email me back or like the few schools that emailed me back were like, you have to be in Panama. So I told my boss at my other job, I've always worked, at the time I'd always been associated with the Department of Rec, for Department of Recreation for Montgomery County, and I was doing youth programming um, for after school programs, summer programs or whatever. So my last day of camp was like Friday, August 2nd, I believe. And I told my boss, I, um, I'm just going to go to Panama. And he was like, he, these were his exact words. He said, Shorty, you ain't going nowhere. And then I was like, yes, I am. Because I had bought a one-way ticket on Spirit Airlines. <laughs> and I was leaving on Saturday, August 3rd. So I didn't have a job at the time, but I had a plan. I printed out like 10 packets with all the information that you needed for like to be hired for a job. And then I had a list of schools and I was basically going to go like knock door to door at any of these institutions. So I landed in Panama on a Saturday. I stay at a hostel. (laughs) I wake up Sunday morning. I go to the mall. I take the bus and I buy a cell phone. And then I put the cell phone, the local cell phone number on my resume and I resend my resume back out. Cause like, I think one place said, call us when you get here. So I took this risk, got my phone, sent the stuff out on Sunday night. Monday, I got two calls for two interviews on Tuesday. I was working by Wednesday. So (laughs) I was working by Wednesday. And so to answer your question, Javier, that's how I ended up there. Did I know that it was going to turn out to be two years where I would like gain these amazing like friends that were mostly male friends on like one real female friend. And then um, I didn't, I didn't expect all of that. I didn't expect the growth that would come out of that. I just kind of like made the leap because I knew it was something that I wanted to do. And I ended up getting way more out of it than I anticipated. In fact, I actually thought I was going to only spend like six months in Panama. And I thought that I was going to go to Peace Corps after I had a Peace Corps invitation, but I ended up declining that and staying in Panama for an extra year. So we'll get there. But yeah, that's, that's what I was doing in Panama. That's how me and Javier met. We met at a dinner. I had been researching people like black people, Googling black people in Panama, moving to Panama while black, teaching while black in Panama. And I came across Alexander Hardy's blog. That is one of our friends. So yeah. Nah, I'm going to throw it to you, Dev. I'm going to just make a a quick statement real fast. You know, I'm going down memory lane right now. And I'm like, oh, you did go to, you were supposed to go to Peace Corps. I remember when that happened. But I'm, I'm just so happy that you're here because Panama was a place for me that I was only supposed to go for six months. And it literally turned into six years. But like, why? You, because that day that I met you at Alex's house, you know, it was, you were just so confident in who you were. And here was me, like a Panamanian by heritage, you know, really scared to leave. And I remember getting a phone call from you a couple of weeks after that and saying that you were going to the Sizzler concert on the beach in Playa Gorgona. And you were like, do you want to come? And I was like really grappling, like, should I go? You know, I don't want to go too far. But then you were like, I'm gone. And I was like, dang, I guess I got to go too. And I got with Kenitra K and we got on the bus and we came out there and that was a crazy, crazy weekend. But from that day forward, after that trip to see Sisla, the Jamaican reggae superstar in Panama and Blago to go on Gorgona Beach, after you showed me that it was possible, I never stopped traveling differently. 
I like really broke through the level of comfort or the fears that I had by staying in my uncle's house. And I was like, if, if she can do it bodaciously like she's doing it, who am I? Like, why am I scared? And like, that really, you know, you really changed the way I thought about myself and how I could interact with the world. And I think that's super important for people to realize. What were you afraid of, bro? You know, I think this is important, right? Because Bintu can talk to us about this too. My dad's from Panama. So my relationship with Panama was through my father and his family. So you can't go there, they want Tifu. You know, they want Tifu Riawaho. They want to take your money, you go in Cologne. You know, you can't go there. You know, I was all these like warnings. Like everybody's going to steal from you. If you go into this place, no, you can't go that side. You know, because they experienced the country in a certain way. Absolutely. And they grew up. So I internalized all of those fears that they had put into me about the country. And I saw many people who were not Panamanians enjoying the country in ways that I just couldn't. And I know Bintu could probably talk about Sierra Leone because I know her heritage. 100%. The way I travel, the way I traveled in Panama, the way I travel in other places, I'll tell you what, the first time I ever traveled the same way in Sierra Leone was this past, me, my husband and I went to Sierra Leone in December. And it was like a whole, this is kind of, you know, the theme of y'all of the, of y'all podcast is like talking about blackness and like roots and ties to different places. My family's from Sierra Leone and um, I went back this December. I haven't been back since 2013. So this trip was very special for me because like now I'm a full grown adult, like actually have a little bit of money now. I can afford to do some things like, you know, I couldn't afford back in the days. I went with my husband, a bunch of my girlfriends were there, one of them was getting married. And so we were very intentional about like doing very quote touristy things. We stayed at hotels, um, you know, we took, we, we, we ride the, we rode these bikes. I don't know if you, I don't know how to say them in English or like what they're called here, but in Sierra Leone, they're called, they're called Okadas. And every country, like the developing world has a lot of those little types of transportation. And so my mom and my dad would never get on those things. But in 2013, I was able to get on those things. I was actually more fearless then than I am now. But all that to say, the reason like we were able to travel fearlessly in other places where our parents are not tied is because when our parents left some of these places, their memories, their memory and their experience back then is so different from what the country, a lot of the countries are like now. So they do have a lot of fear. And sadly, they project some of those fears. There are, there are a lot of dangers. Like I just came from living in Haiti and some of the things I would do, some of my Haitian peers would be like, you did what? Or you know, different risks that you take either out of being naive or just like, what is it? Ignorance of bliss. Maybe that's why we do it. But I also think that we have like this generation, I'm not going to say a, it's not an age thing, but this generation of travelers that has been cultivated over the past few, over the past last several years, we have a different like go when it comes to traveling. Like our guts are like, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to go there. We're going to do that. And we're going to do it again. And then we're going to bring our friends to do it with us. So for me, taking a 25 cent bus, like I just, for me, that was freeing. Like I can get on a bus for like 25 cents and see the country or like go to three hours away for $3? Yeah, I'm gonna go. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go. And my mom is like, oh no, be careful. <laughs> oh my God, you take, you, t- you take bus? Like, it's just, it's unheard of. But even now- They want to keep you. They want to take all your money. You yeah, better sit in the front. <laughs> all she says now is, be careful. You know, it's interesting. So my father was from the States or whatever, right? But I do 
I had a very similar energy that I got from him, not when I traveled to Europe, but when I decided to go to South Africa, he was not comfortable with that. Uh And I realized in that moment, you know, I was my senior year of college, right? I'm out there in Wisconsin. He feels more comfortable with me in racist ass Wisconsin for some reason than in South Africa. Um, Wisconsin got like the worst policing rates with black people across the country. Right. So anyway, I remember when I went out there, he was super afraid and scared. And he used to tell me like every Sunday I'm in, you know, church and I'm crying, praying for you. And I was like, I felt bad for him. Like not because I, what I was doing, just like, I felt bad that you've been conditioned to think this way about the continent of Africa or South Africa, whatever. But I also realized that a lot of my friends, a lot of older black males, right? So my friends' fathers, I'm I'm thinking of two in particular. When I told them I was going, the most fear I got, the people who were most afraid for me were older black men. I've been wrestling with that since, like trying to negotiate and make sense of that. But I actually have a question for you, Bintu. um, And it kind of speaks to like maybe my own views on what it means to be an American diplomat and like, you know, American foreign policy, but how do you negotiate being black, being a black American, but then also working for the State Department, which has done a lot of good, but it's also done a lot of awful things internationally. Um, how do you negotiate that and navigate that? And then is there somebody like maybe someone who came before you or maybe some, you know, black historical figure or some other black diplomat that you kind of like want to idolize your career after? Yeah, so, you know, in um, my best friend's mom, God rest her soul, because she's since passed away, but when I was in eighth grade, she used to call me Condoleezza Rice. I don't know why she used to say that to me. I think, like, I was always involved in SGA, so she maybe thought, like, I would have some type of, like, career or job in the political, like, world. I don't know if she knew exactly what it was, um, but I actually ended up working for the State Department and everything aside, like we, everybody has different opinions. Um, we all, we, we may not always agree with every leader that is, um, every leader that, that leads, but she is somebody that at the time I looked up to because she was a black woman. And as a matter of fact, as you all know, a lot of people didn't align with her politics at the time. But what I do believe is that she was um, and and still is respected as one of America's top diplomats. And so I stand by that. I still think that I'm glad that I had somebody like her to see when I was 13 years old. Now I'm 32 and I actually work for, you know, the department that she that she led. And so whether we agree or disagree with how she led politics back then or what her politics was, she still was an, somebody that I could, a position that I could aspire to be, right? No matter who I am today. I think the other thing, because this is a question that comes up a lot, and it's a question that I actually not necessarily grappled with, because I always felt, because I always felt very confident in what my beliefs are and what I wanted my career to be. But I grappled with how to respond to the question, because a lot of people asked me this question when I was in grad school in 2016, and just about kind of I was like halfway through. And what I realized is that you know my parents came here and they they came to the U.S. in the 1980s. And they came here for school, for better opportunities. They had their children here. And I think they had like dreams for us, but I don't think they ever knew that their child would represent this entire country, right? I don't think that they knew that one of their children would be the face for this entire country when they're overseas. 
So for me, it's actually very simple, right? It's, it's not, politics is complex. Yes, it is. But what is not complex is that I am an American as much as anybody else in this country, whether they treat us like it or not. And guess what? No matter how other people feel, I am the representative when I'm overseas of this country. And so it is very important for me to be in that space. It is very important for people of color to be in the foreign policy sphere, whether domestically or internationally, because oftentimes people like myself are the first contact. And guess what? I can say this openly because there have been a lot of articles about it. The Foreign Service does not have that many Black people or people of color. And so for me, it's just very simple. I want to do this. This is the career I signed up for. I do it every day proudly because I'm representing the country. No matter who comes and who goes, I'm still American. And I think that that's the most, that's the most simple thing. No country is without difficulty. No country is without challenges that they have to confront. We are not perfect. And I, I hope that we don't claim to be. But what I do know, what is like, what doesn't change and what will not change is that I'm an American and it's my, like, it's my duty to show people what that's like overseas and me, like I am that person. Like I'm one of the people that make up this country. So I can't necessarily say that this is something that I grapple with. I walk in my truth every day. When I go to the embassy, I think I was telling Javier this a while back, you know, there are times when people slip up and they ask you to speak to the American, the real American, or, you know, we do prison visits to incarcerated U.S. citizens. And I remember one time I got there, I, I was sitting in the waiting room with my, um, our local staff, because they, they go with us to help navigate. They know the system. They know everything way better than we do. So I go there to visit an inmate, and the, like, warning comes out. And they're just waiting, standing around waiting for the American. But I was already sitting there. So stuff like that makes people upset. But not me, because guess what? I'm going to have to go and tell you that I'm the American, and then we got to keep doing business. So now what, right? And I get it. People, people respond to that differently. When I get to Fort Lauderdale, Customs and Border Protection sometimes like, says, why are you in this line? And so I enjoy that, because if you don't have an understanding of who an American is, that's not, that's not my problem. Mm -hmm. We're we going to fix it today. You, uh, I remember last time we spoke, when we had you speak with our Global Student Fellows, you told a story that is stuck with me about walking out of the Haitian embassy and just the way you, you navigate your Blackness in a Black country, right, at the intersection of your American identity. Um, so what was it like to be in, in a Black country, but yeah. being American? Yeah, no, that's really deep. I think that's a really good question, Devin. You know, I think being overseas, coming back to the U.S., because I'll tell you the truth, growing up in the DMV and, you know, being born to immigrants from Sierra Leone and growing up in communities where everybody was like me, they were first-generation Americans, we saw ourselves as what our parents were. And I am who my parents are, but I'm also different. Like, I'm American. I was born here, and I have, no matter how much I want to say that I am, like, Sierra Leonean or fully Sierra Leonean or whatever, I'm different than my cousins who actually were born and raised in Sierra Leone. And so that's something that I had to grapple with. And I didn't grapple with that until I got to college because I saw like, wow, the international students are saying that I'm not Sierra Leonean. I don't really feel all that comfortable at BSU because I feel like BSU is the Black Student Union. 
I feel like the people who are experiencing and talking about experiences that I'm familiar with are people who go to the African Diaspora Club. So I had to confront like my identity, right, as like a Sierra American. But the more I traveled, the more I saw that half the times I'm going to go to some place and they don't know what Sierra is. It doesn't make sense for me to tell them I'm Sierra American. Like unless they ask and they have some context, all these other labels don't make sense. But what always makes sense is that I'm Black. And so that is something that I'm happy happened to me because I can now, like, I'm now very comfortable in my Blackness and, like, not having to, like, try to put myself in all these different places. I'm proudly American. I'm proudly Sierra Leonean American. I will, I speak Korean. I'll tell you everything that I know about growing up Sierra Leonean. And I'll tell you everything about what that means when you live in the D.C. area. If I, growing up and even now, if I meet, I don't know, a person from Ghana and they, they see my name, my name is African as hell, Bentu Musa. Now it's Harry, but before which is Bentu Musa. Um, they'll be like, oh, where are you from? And if I dare say my parents are from Sierra Leone, they look at that as like, what do you mean your parents are from Sierra Leone, right? What do you mean your parents, you're from Sierra Leone. But when I go to, so it's a whole thing. But now I'm comfortable and I say to people, you know, I, if I feel, if I'm in the mood, I'll say my parents are from Sierra Leone, I'll say that I'm Sierra Leone and American. I'll make them push to see what they're trying to get at. But above all, what doesn't change is that I'm Black. I align myself with Blackness, and I think I can do that safely in any country in the world, right? When I go to Vietnam, I don't think they're gonna care if I'm Sierra Leonean American. They're gonna see that I'm Black. And at some point, they're gonna know that I'm American, right? But what's gonna stand out the most is my Blackness. And in Haiti, to answer that little, you know, that portion of your question, in Haiti, Haiti is a Black country and they're proudly Black. But that didn't stop them from, you know, questioning my husband, you know, extra hard when we were coming into the embassy compound or when he was coming into the embassy compound. Like, I'm married to a Black man um, with locks. And that doesn't matter to me, but it matters to some people. That's why I'm, I'm giving that description, right? He could have been from anywhere, right? But they were like, one time he was coming home and they followed him home, like the security followed him home with a gun because maybe they didn't, they didn't believe that he lived there, right? So we experienced those types of things overseas, even while serving. And is that much different from what we're experiencing here at home in the U.S.? No, it's just something that we unfortunately have to deal with when you are traveling or when you are overseas as a Black person. Thankfully, or unfortunately, however you look at it, most of us have coping skills already. And we have a whole tool bag of how to keep going because you're Black, right? But for me, in the grand scheme of things, like, at work, it didn't necessarily it negatively impact me. I know people who, you know, they didn't take it lightly when somebody asked for the American, right? But for me, I'm like, you see that I'm Black, so you, you maybe could confuse me, confuse me for a Haitian person. I don't mind that. Because in my opinion, not everybody feels like this. In my opinion, I should be confused for Haitian. We're Black. Like, we, you know what I mean? Like, we, we know the history there. So I don't think that's by mistake that I might look like some of my colleagues or that if I'm in Rwanda, they might think I'm Congolese. Like, yeah, that's that's just how it is right now. Like we we try to make all these divisions and we are different. We do have differences. But for me, blackness, I just don't try to distinguish my blackness that much anymore. So 
I have a quick question. I know, you know, kind of, kind of like, what are your, what are your like coping skills? Because I, I'm reflecting on a very particular instance when we were in Panama and we were going to the festival in Portobello called Diablos and Congos, which is a black center festival. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was on the bus with you and Alex and the bus was stopped by the police. And, you know, I had kind of primed Alex for what was going to happen. That they were going to pull us off the bus as black men. And, you know, as I predicted, it happened. And, you know, I remember you having a very certain reaction to what happened on that bus and the questions that you were asking the people about why was this happening to us on the bus. So I'm kind of, I'm asking like, how how have you coped with those things? Because, you know, I I talk about Panama and my experiences there and some people be like, why do you even like the country if so many negative things like that happen? But like, how, how do you cope? So like, how, how do you cope with yeah. these like very adverse experiences that happen? You're right. Cause we had a lot of those types of experiences in Panama, but this is the thing, you know how you see people on Facebook now and they say, well, I need to go to country X because I can't deal with this. But in my head, I'll be thinking like, Oh no, baby, it's <laughs> everywhere. So you can't, Run and it doesn't make it right, but you're gonna run to. I'll use Sierra Leone as an example. The first time I went back there was in 2006, and I remember the way they treated us coming home in quotes versus the way they treated some Chinese um tourist not tourists some Chinese businessmen that were coming in. Right. So if I go home where my parents are from, the place that is responsible for who I am, you know, like the culture that I came up in and I'm treated like this, should I go back or should I run from that? No, I don't think that, I, I think that it's, it's okay to have experiences that rub you wrong, like these things are gonna happen, but if you run, this is just my opinion, if you run, if we run, if we don't, if we stop going, if we don't confront those things, then when are things ever gonna change, A, and B, how are people gonna learn to adjust to seeing black teachers in Panama? <laughs> When are people going to adjust to seeing Black diplomats? When are people going to adjust to not questioning, you know, your nationality when you, you know, you take out your passport? Like, I know people who've been pulled into secondary, right, with certain passports, and they're American. So do we stop showing up? No, we got to keep, it's hard. I know I'm not saying be a martyr, right? People don't, you have to gauge what you actually have the mental capacity to deal with, right? But the moral of the story is somebody has to keep showing up because if we don't, we're not forcing anybody to change the narrative. So that's kind of how I cope. That day on the bus, you know, was one of many experiences like that. And I do think that that was one of the, one of the most like, if the correct word is disenfranchising experiences. And it's always harder with police, right? It's different if you go in a building, um, like our homeboy Conrado, you go in a building and the people say, (laughs) you're not a teacher, you black, you can't be a teacher. Right, like that's kind of laughable. But when you're dealing with like police, you know, state security, that's a little different. Like we're always, we all, all, all black people, or most black people have trauma when they deal with police, period. Okay, so now you take that and put that in the context of being on a bus in a foreign country or a country where you have not grown up and you don't know what's gonna happen to you. And like Javier will tell you guys, the only difference between him and every other black man on the bus was the fact that he had an American passport. But that hasn't stopped him from going because like I, tell, you know, like I said in the beginning, no country is without challenges. Panama, like many other countries, has a long way to go when it comes to how they see black people, perception, you know, what types of spaces black people are expected to occupy um, in Panama. But 
we have to keep doing it, right? Like you change the narrative. You taught kids who probably never had a black teacher, right? So I just think it's very important. And I know not everybody has the energy to do it, but for as long as I have the energy to show up in spaces where people don't think I'm supposed to be, I'm going to show up. And when I'm tired, I'm going to take a break. So, so Bintu, you, you, you've lived internationally a lot. You said you're about to go to Vietnam. And as beautiful as it is to travel and see the world and experience all these things, it's also pretty challenging, right? Like to constantly adjust to a new culture, a new climate, meet new friends, not to be able to experience things back home, the joys yeah. of the Trump presidency, right? You miss those things at home in America. You miss it all. <laughs> you see everybody's eyes like, what the hell are you talking about? So what I wanna, I'm asking is, do you have like a bigger goal? Do you see your, see your role within the State Department as a Black woman? Do you see it as something bigger than yourself? Always. I think about young girls, for example, um, that came to my window when I was in American Citizen Services um, in Haiti. I think about different people who I issued visas to to go study in the U.S. I think about conversations that I've had with people as I travel. I think about, you know, undergrad students or high school students that I talk to and even people in my own family, like my little cousins, right? For me, it's, it's personal, like it's, it's like my personal ambition is like I always wanted to be, um, I always wanted a career in international affairs, but it is also bigger because it is also like I have a very big role. I work for one of the organizations that people aspire to work at when they are in international affairs. And so it's, it's always bigger, right? And you're always, <laughs> people are always looking and seeing. But for me, the personal part of it is like, I'm always trying to just be myself and do what I want to do. I'm happy that it impacts other people. And so that also keeps me going. But it's also like, this is always what I wanted to do. And I do want to eventually like be spokesperson, hopefully either for the department or for a bureau. And the cool thing about um, my job is that even though you are a foreign service officer, you work every two years, you can do something new. You can do something new every like one year. So in this capacity, I can train diplomats at some point, um, new diplomats. I can train people at some point how to do the type of work, public affairs work. I can um, work on developing programs, right? So there's so many different things that I can do. And I can tell you one thing now, and probably in two years, it could change, but it might not change. But right now, my short-term goals are like, I'm going to go to Vietnam. I really want to like rock out Vietnamese. Like I'm learning Vietnamese as of yesterday. It, I don't even want to say it's super hard because I don't want to claim that. I'm going to say it's going to be a challenge, but I'm going to rise to the challenge. And yeah, short-term, I want to learn Vietnamese. I want to speak it very well. I want to go to Vietnam, do my best there, excel. I, I want to have children. Like that's a personal goal. Um, and then I think after I get back from Vietnam, we are going talking about, you know, being stable or settling in the U.S. for a bit. My husband and I have said that we're going to come back from Vietnam, stay in the U.S. for a good amount of time. I'll work at the department. We call it Maine State, which is like the, the headquarters down here and see where that takes me. There's so many opportunities, but the things that I know that I want to do for sure, be somebody's spokesperson up in the department and also teach. I plan to apply to a bunch of, not let me not say a bunch of, I want to teach at a community college in the area for a very specific reason. I want to, it's, it's a community college in, in Prince George's County. And I want to teach, frankly, um, 
black kids, you know, and expose them to different aspects of government early on. So that is my, you know, those are my short term goals, come back to DC after Vietnam and see how I can teach. That's, that's beautiful. I'm a, I know we're coming to the end here. Um, so I'm gonna give Javier the opportunity to ask you last one more question if he has. But before I do that, I did want to speak a little bit. I loved Vietnam, loved my experience. And I actually have a book reference for you. Yes. It is called The Mountain Sing. My fiance is actually reading this right now. It's written oh. by a Vietnamese woman, not Vietnamese American, but a Vietnamese woman. She's loving it. I loved my experience in Vietnam. I'm going to put that in my heart. I cannot and, wait to go. I've only heard good things. You know, we don't know what we're getting into, but we're excited about it. And I've never been to Asia. It's going to be a brand new region for me. And I've always wanted to go. So I'm ready. Like, I'm going to be going everywhere. You know, for me, being a Black in Vietnam was very interesting because, you know, obviously America has a, a rough history with them, right? And, and I could feel it in certain parts of the country, whether I was in the South, more so in the North, I could feel that they knew I was American and that some people were not over the devastation that America levied on this country or that region, nor should they be, right? But I'm still, like you said, going about my day, trying to meet people, just trying to be me. And then in some ways I felt my blackness giving me uh, extra little space, right? Like, all right, you're, you're, you're American, but you're black. So we're gonna give you a little, a little space here and not frame you as just like a white American, but it's really interesting, man, because when you think of, when you look at like some of the stuff that was going on in Vietnam and we can call it propaganda, whatever, like they had like radio stations where they would play soul music and they would talk directly to black soldiers and tell them, why are you over here? We are not your enemy. The American government is your enemy. They keep your people in bondage. They keep you all segregated. And it was so fascinating because obviously like black Americans were the number one soldiers I mean, right. Blacks were the top soldiers killed. So this whole relationship of like being American, but not being a full American and how the Vietnamese, Vietnamese tried to, um, I don't want to say exploit that, but that's the best word that I could come up with right now and kind of draw those divisions. I thought was fascinating and the way they did it through, through music, really interesting. And I think that you will have a really interesting experience yeah. there. Um, great place. Great place. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. Yeah, I, I really don't even have any departing questions. I'm just, you know, like I said at the beginning, just super amazed over all the things that Benta Musa Harry has done in her life. Coming from that, again, that first day that I met her in Alex's apartment in Panama to where we are now and hearing her say that she's going to Vietnam or Southeast Asia, a place that I know she had been talking about since I met her in that time of oh, this is what I want to do. And I haven't always been the best person to plan. And I'm glad about it because life has worked itself out in this way. But I know Bintu, I look at her and I see what she's doing. And I know these are things that she has thought out deeply and have planned for them to happen. And they have as such like the commitment to leave Panama and go do the masters. And, and you know, all the challenges that that brought up you know, with her and every in her life. I'm just so happy to have to see this thing play itself out and listening to what she has established 
for what's to come in the future. And if the future is anything like these last couple of years since 2012, we will hear from Ben Two again being the speaker of the House or whatever they do in the Foreign Department State for the big people. Because that will happen. Because we've seen it so far. So I think that I'm just happy to have had the opportunity to speak with this young woman and know her in her youth before she become too big for us. And hey, that's a grown woman there, right? <laughs> I, I, can I ask you a last question? Yes, and maybe we'll, uh, we can ask all of our guests this, but why do you think it's important for Black American youth to get abroad? Oh man, it's so freeing. You know what? I'm glad you asked that. I think this is the perfect question. You should ask everybody this. I still remember the exact feeling that I felt when I was walking down this road, down the street in the suburb of um, Alcala. It's, it's called Alcala. It's a suburb outside of Madrid. My mom, I told her I wanted to study abroad. I actually wanted to study abroad in Panama because my school was offering a program. It was $5,000 in undergrad for this three, three to four week program. I was like, mm, that's too much. So the next opportunity came and it was Spain and it was $3,000. And so I told my mom I wanted to do it. And I told her, you know, I think I use like my financial aid or student loans or whatever to pay for the class. And then I said, mommy, I'm going to need like some spending money. And by that time, my parents were divorced. She was now single parent raising us or whatever, paying for me to go to school. And she saved like a thousand dollars for me. And I don't, I never told her an, her an amount. I just told her I needed spending money. But like a college kid, you just give me a thousand dollars. Like I didn't even think about that. Like, you know, I never thought that that was going to be the amount. But anyway, I had all this like, like money that my mom gave me so that I could have a good experience when I was studying abroad. And so I'm walking down the street and I'm on my way to class because we used to have the, you know, the siesta break in the middle of the day. And I was just like stopping in every store. And then there was this little like pastry shop and it was something like so simple, but I didn't know anything about any of the pastries and I didn't know anything about this street, but I remember I felt so free. And I was just like, I'm just here in this place. I don't know anything about this place, but here I am. And that feeling, I said, I want to keep feeling this. I don't know what it is, but I think it was the the rush from the unknown. And it is that same fear. It's actually the fear of the unknown that stops people from traveling. The people who say, be careful, or don't go there. Or, Why you want to go there? That's too far. You know anybody there? All of that is because we don't know. And I think the people who somehow travel, whether by accident or intentionally, they love that feeling. Every time you go somewhere, it's new. You got to figure out what to eat. The grocery stores are different. You don't know what type of, everything is different. And like, I will never forget that feeling. That is what took me from Spain, studying around Spain to accepting an internship in Guyana. That's how I learned about the foreign service is through an internship in, at U.S. Embassy Georgetown, Guyana. Then that led me to, you know, working locally and wanting to be in the foreign service. Then I went to, I moved to Panama. And then from Panama, I eventually did the Fulbright in Rwanda. Then I came back to DC, joined the foreign, after grad school, joined the foreign service, Haiti. And I've been traveling to other places in between. You know, I've studied abroad in South Africa. I did an internship in Lima. And then finally, my first assignment in Haiti. So 
every single time. It is hard to transition. It's always hard to transition. You never take away from that. And even transitioning back to the U.S. is a whole thing, right? There's a lot we don't, we don't know. There's a lot of shock. There's a lot of like, I'm loving and overwhelmed also by Trader Joe's or whatever in Whole Foods. But that rush that you get when it's brand new, it's just nothing like it. It all started with pastry. It all started with pastry. That is what keeps, <laughs> that's what keeps me going. <laughs> that feeling walking down the street and I don't know, I'm free. I know it's hard. It's hard to be away from home. It's hard to be away from people that you love. But the world is, is huge. There's so much mm-hmm. to see. There's so many connections to be made. And I think, you know, what you guys are trying to get at here, and I think what other people will say is, I also learned so much about myself. That's you right. know, when, I, when, when, when Javier started this off, he said, I know your life wasn't just beginning, but like Panama was a big turning point in my life. And it's because we had to figure out everything for ourselves. There was no blueprint for us. We were four to five young Black kids, really kids, that moved to a brand new country, even though some of, some of us had ties and roots. We were navigating, you know, Javier's parents left, his dad left Panama. He went back to Panama. Nobody had done that before. So we were, we were creating this, this pathway. We wrote about it. We talked to people about it. We shared with our students. And so, you know, if there's nothing else that people take away is that do it because it's freeing. It is not without challenges. It is not without like pains and like being wrongly prescribed medications and missing your family and being homesick, but it's totally worth it because you are free and you will discover things about yourself that you cannot discover if you stay in the same place forever. Hey, drop the mic. Drop it. It's been dropped. That's it. We're going to have an increase in signups for our study abroad program after that. I know, right? (laughs) We got to go. On our list, <laughs> let me tell y'all. If my cousin's supposed to study at Sciences Po, and then she's thinking she's not gonna be able to go, I call her every day. Like, yeah. So what they saying? Cause you gotta go. <laughs> so, so Bintu, where can if folks wanna maybe follow you or uh, you know keep up with your journeys, your travels, your leadership? You know, that's a very good question. I have not been creatively inspired to blog. I used to blog at beesbackseat.blogspot.com. I'm on Facebook, of course, Bintu Musahari. I'm on Instagram as Bintu Boss. I'm on LinkedIn. I actually encourage people to connect via LinkedIn if they want to just connect off of like, you know, study abroad, travel, international careers, whatever it is, grad school. Happy to connect. And I think for people that you all know, like your students, if you really want to make the connection, like, you know, give them my phone number, right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time, your spirit, your energy. No problem. Uh, allowing Javier to relive some moments. You got any parting words, Benton? You know what? I think I said it all. They can play it back. You know, travel when you can. Be free. You are free. Mm, you are free. Don't wait for nobody else. Make it happen. We out. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. A special shout out goes out to our production team, Sophia Leal and Sydney Cox. Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.